Last week we talked about uh, the miserable life experience of those who are awakened to the righteous requirement of the law but are unable to fulfill it because their sin-dominated flesh weakens them. Paul clearly tells us we're going to serve one of two masters. Either sin will rule us or we will be ruled by Christ. Not a particularly popular message when we independent Americans only want to be free of all restrictions. And yet, this is the truth of the gospel. Either we will be sin-dominated or we will submit ourselves to Christ. If you think about the consequences of being dominated by sin, however, the choices ought to be rather clear, I think. We affirm, based on what we're taught in Scripture, that the wages of sin is death. And that's not the option I particularly want to choose. And so my choice, at least in my mind, is simple. Sin leads to our destruction. But confidence can be found in the promises of Christ. It's important to know, though, that the promises of Christ have conditions. I guess to put this topic fairly on the table, I have to address some of the craziness that exists all around us. Words and phrases that just circulate everywhere. They populate the airwaves. They're all over social media. And they sort of sometimes seem a little innocent on the face of them. But I'm not sure how innocent they are. Have you noticed the recent trend on social media to replace prayer with positive vibes? Have, have, you, have you caught that? There are some folks who are afraid to ask for prayer because they don't want everything that comes with prayer. And they'd just rather have us send them some positive vibes. People with no Christian allegiance want our positive thoughts. As if our positive thoughts are going to do something sent across the universe to them. To me, this feels like placing hope in a placebo. At worst, I think it's idol worship. I think this is how this works. The idol we're talking about here is the social construction of something to believe in when there's nothing else I'm willing to believe in. I need something to trust in. I need something greater than myself to help me, something to help ease my mind, so I create an idol. In this instance, the idol is an idea. It's an idea idol. And the idol is this. Positive vibes can make a difference. What is that? It might as well be wood or stone positive vibes don't translate into anything anywhere. They may make me feel better personally where I am, but we don't transmit positive vibes via Facebook to anything, to anyone in any way. You, you've heard this kind of talk. Or maybe around funerals. We get all kinds of feel-good language about what happened to our loved ones or to the messages they might or may not be sending to us from the other side to help us know that they're okay and so we can feel better about ourselves. We talk about another angel getting their wings. That was a Hollywood movie, by the way. We talk about people being in a better place. We talk about people being free from pain 
which may or may not be true. We talk about being rejoined to the universe. We talk about the good things a person did so that surely God will admit them into heaven. And our rationale for our proclamations that a person has reached their heavenly reward are sometimes flimsy and shaky at best. They're, they're not built on anything. We spin out these phrases, these feel-good words of comfort, because we need them, not necessarily because they're based on anything. We create these individualistic criterion for judgment that are based on the philosophy of the day or whatever helps me feel good for the moment without the need to base those beliefs or those phrases in any concrete thing at all. This is what you ought to expect from a culture that says it's okay to believe anything at all and just add, well, this is just who I am. This is my truth. Well, then you can believe anything without evidence, without foundation, without support. I say pay up for your membership in the Flat Earth Society. Go for it. They're all just as legitimate if you can believe anything without foundation or without probability or without historicity or any of it. The Bible, however, offers us concrete promises built on observed events written and recorded for us by countless generations of people. It isn't a momentary construction. It isn't a reflection of just one culture. It isn't a snap judgment. It is the record of God's dealing with his people over centuries and millennia. It is more reliable than anything else we have. And in it, we find reasons for confidence, insight for living, and a foundation on which to build a secure life. So we've made our way up to Romans 8 and listened for the promises of God in Romans 8 and for the conditions that are a part of those promises. This is Romans 8, New Revised Standard Version. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. In those verses and in the verses that follow, Paul is simply saying this. Sin will kill you, and you are not strong enough to free yourself from its grip. 
That is the foundational truth of Scripture and of salvation and redemption. Sin will kill you, and you are not strong enough by yourself to free yourself from its grip. In fact, before you come to Christ, you are so firmly in its grip, whether you know it or not, sin is sucking the life out of you. But Christ has the power to deliver us from sin and offers us a new way of living that will free us from the power of sin that is everywhere around us. But you must, be, you must really be clear about what's being offered. The offer of Christ is simple but specific. Christ forgives our sin and breaks the power of sin over us. He liberates us from the entanglements of sin. And if we choose to walk in the way he describes for us, we will, in fact, fulfill the law, which has now been summarized in the royal law of love. And the outcome for this way, the outcome for all who walk in this pattern, is, according to the passage, life and peace. Did you see verse 6 again? To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Would you say those three words with me? Life and peace. We try all kinds of mental tricks to try to keep ourselves from feeling bad about ourselves. We rationalize our behavior. We drown out our behavior with other activities and entertainment. We tell ourselves that we're not as bad as other people. Rationalize, excuse, deny. Again, all an exercise in delusion. And I wonder why we go to those lengths when we have a real offer on the table. Why try tricks when the real thing is present? And I think one of the reasons people would rather drown their sin and their bad feelings and all that stuff rather than accept the forgiveness that Christ offers is because there really is a cost to this. I'll grant you, our salvation is a free gift that we receive that we can't earn, that's given to us. But it's not be saved and then live any way you choose. That, that's not what the offer is that's on the table. Remember, it's there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The freedom from the guilt and the sin and the shame is anchored in our abiding in Christ. Our part in this process is to set our minds on the Spirit. That's what verse 6 said, right? To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So how do you do that? How do you set your mind on the Spirit? How do you do that? Do you, have a, do you have an answer in your mind? Anything come to mind? Let's take the question and make it non-rhetorical. How do you set your mind in the Spirit? Answer me. Worship music in her car. That certainly turns your attention to God, doesn't it? Great strategy. What else do you do? You have to talk louder. I can't hear you. I still didn't hear. Oh, time in the Word of God, right? Listening to the Word, seeing what the Spirit will give us in His Word. What else?
honest discussions with people who are also trying to walk in the Spirit. Prayer. Biblical reading, spiritual reading. The, the lives of the saints. Spiritual, encouraging, biblical reading is everywhere today. Those are some of the things I do to set my mind on the Spirit. I think there has to be times of quiet in your life. I mean, if all you're doing is talking and never listening, it's hard to receive from the Spirit. In a, in a very specific way, this is, what, this is what John says to us. This is John 15, 4. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me you can do nothing. There's, there's something very significant about our determination, our discipline to stay attached to Christ to giving Christ attention, to responding to the impulses that arise when I read the Scripture. Now you understand, no impulses ever arise from Scripture until you read it. It's very much like the TV commercial that says, you can't win the lottery unless you play the lottery. You can't expect insight from Scripture unless you read the Scripture. So the first step is actually a discipline of reading the Scripture. How do we respond to the sense of conviction when the Holy Spirit speaks? You, you know what I'm talking about. There are times when you're about to do something and the Holy Spirit puts his finger on your shoulder. I mean, you're driving down Route 84, going 84, and the Spirit says, you know, you're going a little too fast. And then you have to decide whether you're going to pass that truck or whether you're going to slow down, right? And how do you, how do you respond when the when the Holy Spirit prompts you in any way, do you say, oh, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's, who knows what that is. I'm just, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Or do I respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit? That Responding positively in obedience to the prompting of the Spirit allows you to continue to hear the voice of the Spirit. But the more you resist the Holy Spirit, the more difficult it becomes to hear, and you move further and further away until you are like the seed that falls on the stony ground that has a lot of enthusiasm to get started but can't put down deep roots and just withers and dies from lack of sustenance. How do you respond to the Spirit's instructions when confirmed by the words of other Christians or by Christian leaders? What do you do actively to seek your connection to God? How do you nurture that connection to God? What practices? What disciplines? You say, Pastor, you're making it sound like this Christian life is all this work I have to do. This Christian life is very much like gardening. You can't do a blessed thing to make those seeds grow, but you can plow the soil. You can water after having planted, 
You can fertilize. There's all kinds of things you can do to encourage that growth. But the growth will always be all of God's doing. And so it's a cooperative thing. That this abiding in Christ is not so much a passive verb. It's an active staying in Christ. What do I do to be present to God throughout my day? If you've read any of the spiritual classics, you, you know the story of Brother Lawrence, who's a, a monk who's washing dishes and baking bread, and he talks about his life of prayer while he's just doing mundane things all day long. And you look at his life and you say, oh, he's a dishwasher. You don't see he's a dishwasher slash prayer warrior. And you don't see about his writings and his meditations and all that he's uh, considered when it comes to his relationship with God. All of those things compose life in the spirit. It is the connection to the spirit that offers us the continual power over the advances of the enemy, over the advances of the culture over the temptations of my body. Apart from surrender to the will of God by living life in the Spirit, there is no victory, there is no confidence, there is no assurance. The Christian life is this, living according to the law of the Spirit of life, which is living in the ruling sphere of the reign of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to live in that sphere where the Holy Spirit reigns as the Spirit of Christ. Without that lifestyle, we are like folks who hear the gospel, hear, but don't do, don't see, aren't transformed, and wither away. So when Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's not saying, hey, no sweat. Once you're saved, do whatever you like because you're off the hook now. See, there's no condemnation anymore, so you can do whatever you want and just live it up with confidence. That is a false theology straight from hell. What Paul is saying is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those whose minds are set on the Spirit. Does that mean that there's no longer any any sense of judgment when we do wrong? No. Conviction or course correction is part of learning to live under the rule of the Holy Spirit, and it is a gift to us. But there is a huge difference between condemnation and correction, right? The difference is Satan comes to condemn and tell you you're useless, you're no good, to shame you for your past behavior, to tear you down. But when the Holy Spirit speaks and offers us course correction and says, no, that's wrong, don't do that, it's always redemptive. It's always an attempt to excise from us that which would harm us and to restore us to health so that we can grow stronger. There's none of this in Christ Jesus. There is this, there is redemption, there is correction, there is reproof that encourages us because he's telling us continually that we're valuable to him. We matter to him. There's no condemnation. I guess I would add one more thing, and that is the freedom we have in Christ isn't necessarily psychological. 
one of the battles we have to fight in this lifetime is the fact that while Satan condemns us for our past, and while we know that Christ forgives us and liberates us, we still got to deal with our own selves. And sometimes we have difficulty forgiving ourselves for our past. Sometimes the freedom we have in Christ doesn't rewire all of our brain chemistry to the place that we can just forgive ourselves. And this is a work of grace over time in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and others. We have to slowly over time begin to affirm that what God says of us is true. That the forgiveness he has pronounced is actual. And though there may be consequences of my past sins that carry on into the future, may there, maybe there are difficulties that because of those choices I still have to deal with. Because God doesn't remove the consequences of our action. But he forgives us, proclaims us clean, and continues to work with us so that we can have a rich and meaningful future. We still have to participate in his forgiveness by forgiving ourselves and at the risk of preaching a whole other sermon, forgiving everyone else. That's a piece of this. Believing the forgiveness God has for us. He has pronounced it. It is true we need to accept it. I'm wondering, have you made the decisive choice to set your mind on the Spirit and to live in Christ? It's, it's as important as the decision you made to step into the kingdom to begin with. We talk at times you know, about the joy of initiating a relationship with Christ, but we don't always spend as much time talking about the fact that once we have stepped into the kingdom, we have to remain in the kingdom and live as citizens of the kingdom. And it takes a definitive choice to do that because everything around us is trying to draw us back out the door into the culture, into the society, into the compromise, into the foundationless ways of living that people use to cope with the stress of this life. My encouragement to you today is to recognize that the law of the spirit of life sets you free from the law of sin and death and to embrace the freedom that is ours to those who are in Christ. Pray with you for a moment, and then we're going to sing a song in closing. If you haven't ever determined for yourself that you want to live in Christ, I invite you to do that while we pray this morning. And then simply begin daily to pray, Holy Spirit, what do I have to do in order to live in you? What, what, what do I have to do? What, what practices do I have to embrace? What habits do I have to end? How do I keep you before my mind through my day? Are there friendships that need to be altered? Are there new routines that need to be established? How, how do I stay in Christ? That's the question to ask. If you're just for the first time making the decision that you not only want to be in the kingdom, but you want to live in the kingdom in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we...
grateful for the proclamation that there is no condemnation for those who are in you, that you have forgiven us for everything we've done in the past, you've forgiven us for our deficiencies, you've forgiven us for our flaws, that you have accepted us as we are, that you have new life into us, that we are completely new creatures in you. We are grateful for your work, for this amazing work, this, this work that we could not do in ourselves. We were powerless before sin, but Lord, you freed us from its icy grip. You freed us from the sting of death, and you established us in your kingdom, and we are grateful. But now, Lord, help us to choose to live there, to walk there with you, to remain and abide with you moment by moment. And in ways that we're living that are less than that, ways that are not worthy of the high calling we've received from you. Would you correct us? Would you show it to us? Would you point out our bad attitudes, our unforgiveness, our arrogance, our pride, our deceit, our dishonesty? Lord, in whichever ways we're trying to protect, do what we want to, would you, would you point it out to us so that we can humbly live relying on you and obeying you? We confess our need of you day by day. And we ask for this continued grace so that we may live to please you days. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, who is able to present you before his throne on that great day, faultless, to him be glory in the church and in the world now and forever. Amen.